I thought for sure you'd start singing. <laughs> Those were the days, my friend. Ah, the good old days. How often do we say that? But were the good old days really all that good? Or all that much better than today? We have a tendency to idealize the past. Personally, I'm glad to give up some of the things in the past, in particular outhouses, ice boxes, having to pump water, the old washing machines with the hand wringers. Yep, hard work. Mostly reliable electricity, self, well, mostly reliable electricity, sorry. So, I really screwed that up. <laughs> So we're ending with the washing machines and the hand wringers, okay? Because I wanted you to know I'm actually old enough to remember using those things in my early childhood. I am really happy to have things like refrigeration, mostly reliable electricity, cell phones, internet, modern day medications and medical treatments. I think about the changes that my grandmother witnessed in her 103 years of life the changes my mother experienced in her 92 years of life, and the changes that many of you have known over the decades of your lives. And really, when I think about it, I just marvel at how much change there's been. Today, in our age of information and technology, the rapid pace of change is just incredible. Buckminster Fuller estimated that until about 1900, Human knowledge doubled approximately every century. By the end of World War II, they thought knowledge was doubling about every 25 years. Today, with all of the different types of very specialized knowledge available, some estimate that we're not far from having knowledge rate double every 12 hours. That's mind-boggling, right? Mind-boggling. So can you imagine being a college student today? There's a small private college near my hometown. It's called Beloit College. And three of its former professors and staff have for many years created a list describing the college's incoming freshmen. So here are a few of the things they had to say about the world of students born in 1997 who entered college this past September. It's a partial list. I will, um, I think I have the whole list and I can, if I do, I'll put it out on the table later if you wanna see it. So those students, for them, hybrid automobiles have always been mass produced. Google has always been there. These students have never licked a postage stamp. <laughs> Email has become the new formal way of communicating. They've grown up treating Wi-Fi as an entitlement, or if not as an entitlement, at, at least as a necessity. The announcement of someone being the first woman to hold a position has only impressed their parents and grandparents. Cell phones have become so ubiquitous in class that teachers don't know which students are using them to take notes and which students are planning a party. 
their parents have gone from encouraging them to use the internet for, to begging them to get off of it. <laughs> Surgeons have always used super glue in the operating room. Fifteen nations have always been building the International Space Station. The Lion King has always been on Broadway. And first responders have always been heroes. We older folks tend often to frown upon the younger generation. We say, what's this world coming to? What's the matter with kids today? Why can't they be like we were perfect in every way? <laughs> and we make comments about this, especially when we listen to their music or observe their fashion ideas or hear about some of their interests that we just don't relate to. Perhaps you've heard this quote often attributed to Plato or Socrates, but actually written by Kenneth John Freeman, who studied the classics. Freeman summarized the complaints against young people in ancient times in his 1907 Cambridge dissertation this way. The counts of the indictment against today's youth are luxury, bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect to elders, and love for chatter in place of exercise. Children have become tyrants, not the slaves of their households. They no longer rise from their seats when an elder enters the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up the dainties at table, and commit various offenses against polite tastes. It seems sometimes that the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Seriously, though, I know a great number of young people, and I know you do too, and some of them are right here in our congregation on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings when we have our teen group. Most of you know that I spent 20 years working in public education, and one year we ran a publicity campaign to increase awareness of the importance of early childhood education. Our motto was children, our investment in the future. And I still have the button on my bookshelf in my office. I meant to bring it to show you. Um, I, we were quite proud of that campaign. And I do believe that we have to invest today in our children's health and wellness and education if we want them to have a brighter future. Unfortunately, not everyone believes in investing today for the future of others. As an example, here's a short and true story about some people's short-sightedness or selfishness or greed, perhaps. When Gary and I bought a condo in 2003, we became part of a condo association. You all, a lot of you know about that, like a homeowner's association. Well, Gary immediately got pegged to be the president of this association, and it was really, really a frustrating experience. This was a small one. All six units were new or fairly new, so the owners were reluctant to put any money aside for future maintenance and repairs. 
Illinois law at that time did not stipulate a particular percentage to be set aside. So after lots of haggling, the other owners finally and grudgingly agreed to pay an annual assessment of less than $100 per unit per year for future needs. They said things like, I won't even be alive in 20 years when the roof wears out. Why should I care? Hmm. Think about that attitude as we envision the future of this church. It's not an attitude that would serve us well. Earlier this month, I asked the question, what kind of future are we creating for our children? Well, despite the attitude of our fellow condo owners in the past and others like them, there is some good news. There's also some bad news. But best of all, I believe there is hope. Unfortunately, media in general tend to pounce on the negative emphasize the sensational, twist the statistics to fit the story they're trying to tell, and promote fear and despair. We'd all do well to avoid jumping on, the on board the bandwagons of gloom and doom. So here's some good news. Have you seen or do you remember the photo that's gone viral? The picture of our current president leaning over in the Oval Office so a young African-American boy could touch his hair. And upon feeling the president's head, the little boy said, it's just like mine. <laughs> and now more than ever, perhaps young brown and black children can point to a variety of exceptional role models and really believe that they can be somebody. Yes, I know there's still lots of barriers, including racism and socioeconomic inequality that need to be overcome, but we are making progress. Who ever thought we would have two women running for president of the Unitarian Universalist Association? Susan Frederick Gray, my colleague in Phoenix, not to play favorites, but Susan Frederick Gray and Allison Miller, both uh, wonderfully qualified candidates. It's taken us nearly 100 years to get to this place where we will have a woman president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, and we may have a woman president or vice president of our country even sooner. We certainly have more strong women now than ever before in leadership positions in government, in corporations, in businesses, and in our churches. Is there still work to be done on gender equity issues? Of course. But we're making progress. Within the last year, we achieved marriage equality rights in this country. Today, despite what's happening in North Carolina and a few other places, we are gaining ground in understanding and promoting rights for transgendered persons. To my way of thinking, we have a long way to go to truly value diversity, but we've made progress. The progress we long for never really seems quite fast enough, but there is some progress nonetheless. And that, that gives me hope. 
Last month on April 22nd, Earth Day, the United Nations Paris Agreement was signed by 177 member nations and quickly ratified by 15 countries. This ratification promises significant changes in mitigating greenhouse gas emission by 2020. The head of the Paris Conference, France's Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius, don't know if I said that right, he said this ambitious and balanced plan is an historic turning point in the goal of reducing global warming. Now some people say too little too late, but to have 177 countries sign on, I think that's hopeful. We'll come back to that topic in a few minutes. Where else is there hope for our future, or at least a sense of direction? In an April 5th Huffington Post Live interview of Steve Case, co-founder of America Online, he said that technological change is advancing surely faster than social change, but it has really, really changed over the years. He talked about the beginning of AOL, and he said that there were only 3% of people in this country online about an hour a week in 1985. How many of you spend more than an hour a week online? Do you remember the internet access on the slow dial-up connections? How about, welcome, you've got mail. Or is it, hello, you've got mail. I forget what it was. After building the internet, the second wave of progress came with the introduction of apps, software, and social media. But now, according to Case, we're ready for the third wave. This third wave of internet technology will help seamlessly integrate internet uses into our lives. It will revolutionize healthcare, education, industry, and finance. Here's a small example of that from our own Jean McKean, who was referred to a specialist after a recent physical. And I've adapted this a little, but she gave me permission to tell you this story. Rather than having to travel to Tucson when she was referred to a specialist, Jean was able to meet Dr. Ho. Is that right? Here. He only comes once a month to the clinic in Sierra Vista, and there's a rather lonely-looking transient doctor's office for the people who come back and forth. And it's in the far corner of a large suite with two chairs, a table, and absolutely no personnel. Jean says, there are a few chairs outside the office and patients sign in on a clipboard placed on an unattended small table nearby. When Dr. Ho arrived, he looked like an airline pilot with baggage stacked up rolling behind him. We went into the wee office and he very quickly pulled up my history on his laptop or some device. Was it a laptop? He was quick and he had all my medical history and recent labs secured in minutes. I knew at once that he must be extremely capable. Jean goes on to write, we discussed changing my meds, then he said he wanted a look at my kidneys. 
He said, no need to move. I could stay seated. He whipped out a small device only slightly larger than a smartphone. He attached a small wand and asked me to pull up my blouse just above my waist. He pressed the magic wand on my right side. And presto, there was a sonogram of my kidney, which he showed Jean. He snapped a picture, and then he did the other side. He told Jean to drink lots of water and come back next month, and he told her that his assistant in Tucson would give her a call and set up the next appointment. And she was done until next month. Jean says, my impression was that I should be feeling very, very lucky to be alive at my age in this age. So I thought that was uh, a neat story about how internet applications and uses are, are really helping us. So through the power of the internet and technology, Gene was able to see an out-of-town doctor locally, and he had all the necessary information right at his fingertips. He also had the compact equipment necessary to aid in diagnosis and treatment. This story is an illustration of the early stages of the integrative third wave of technology, internet technology described by Stephen Case. Case emphasized the importance and the need in the third wave of internet development for the three P's that were learned during the first wave, partnership, policy, and perseverance. Partnership, policy, and perseverance. It seems to me that these three P's are important to us as we build towards any future we might dream about. We will need to know how to partner effectively with other groups. We will need to develop some policies that will enable us to engage others without stepping on their toes. We will need to preserve what is important to us and what is most valuable to them. And we will have to persevere. Sometimes there are overnight changes, overnight gains and successes, but most of the time change is difficult. It takes some time. Besides patience, we must also learn to better navigate the tricky balance between experience and fresh perspectives. Without the benefit of both, efforts at building a better future will languish. AOL Steve Case spoke about the internet and the technology of the future. Edward Osborne Wilson, an American biologist, researcher, theorist, naturalist, and author, talks about life on Earth and the alarming rate of extinction. Wilson recently released a new book called Half Earth, Our Planets Fight for Life. He was interviewed for a PBS book review about two weeks ago. Wilson agrees that technological advances are going to help shrink the human ecological imprint on our planet. Yet he warns about explosive population growth, and he laments the rapid pace of species extinction caused by human population and loss of habitat. Wilson's grand idea is to set aside 50% of the Earth's habitat to preserve the other species on our planet. That's the title of his book, Half Earth. 
He doesn't advocate displacing humans, so he's not going to move all the people around. He says there's enough wild land that if we preserve it, conserve it, that we could save the lives of so many other species. Only 15% of the earth is specifically set aside for this purpose now. He may be on to something. Who knows? If 177 countries can sign the Paris Agreement, perhaps many countries will set aside more land to preserve and protect other species. Wilson says that his plan is not about preserving life as we know it. Instead, he asserts, we really should take extra measures to save the rest of life on Earth. He asks, who are we, one species, to wipe out a majority of the species that live with us on this planet just for our own selfish needs? While not a scientist like E.O. Wilson, Wendell Berry, the American writer, environmental activist, and farmer, offered a little different take in a spring 2015 article in Yes! Magazine that Dave and Edna left here that Jerry read that he gave to me. Barry suggests that maybe we could give up saving the world and start to live savingly in it. Maybe we could give up saving the world and start to live savingly in it. He reminds us of the importance of history, knowing and understanding that which we do not want to repeat. But he suggests that our worry about the future interferes with taking effective action in the present. So let me end with a few paragraphs from Barry's article. If we have our minds set in the future, where we are sure that climate change is going to play hell with the environment, we have entered into a convergence of abstractions that makes it difficult to think or do anything in particular. If we think the future damage of climate change to the environment is a big problem only solvable by a big solution, then our thinking or doing something in particular becomes more difficult, perhaps impossible. He goes on to say, there is in fact much at hand and in reach that is good, useful, encouraging and full of promise, although we seem less and less inclined to attend to or value what is at hand. We are always ready to set aside our present life, even our present happiness, to peruse the menu of future exterminations. Remember what I told you about the media? I know you all know that. They like to run, run those out in front of us, all the awful things that are going to happen. If the future is threatened by the present, which it undoubtedly is, then the present is more threatened and often annihilated by the future. The present is going by. We are not in it if we are focused on gloom and doom scenarios constantly. We can't set about to save the world 
but we can, as he said, live savingly in it. Barry writes, so few as just one of us can save energy right now by self-control, careful thought, and remembering the lost virtue of frugality. Spending less, burning less, traveling less may even be a relief. A cooler, slower life may make us happier, more present to ourselves and to others who need us to be present. Because of such rewards, a large problem may be effectively addressed by the many small solutions that, after all, are necessary no matter what any government might do. The government might even do the right thing at last by imitating the people. It is the presence of good, good work, good thoughts, good acts, good places by which we know that the present does not have to be a nightmare of the future. How will your present living define your legacy? What good words, good thoughts, good acts, and good places will you create to enrich your life today, to create a history worth emulating? <laughs>